Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species, a radio show bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's bringing awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly, appreciation. We're broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available via the 3CR and the Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are on iTunes. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Emma Townsend and joining us today by phone is Daryl Jones. Thanks for joining us today, Daryl. Great to be here, Emma. Now, Daryl, earlier this year published a book called The Birds at My Table, Why We Feed Birds and Why It Matters, which really caught my attention because I confess I am a bird feeder myself. Oh, my goodness. Oh, you've confessed on air. <laughs> I know. I confessed on air. Oh, I didn't... dear, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, Daryl, what kind of bird feeding are we talking about in your book and, and where are we talking about bird feeding? Yeah, this is very, very much about people feeding birds at their own place, so in their backyard or on the veranda or wherever it might be. It's, n- it's definitely not uh, about you know, feeding bread to the ducks down the pond or in the national park or anything like that. So it's it's that situation where people are trying to attract birds to their own little patch somewhere and seeing the wild birds coming to visit them. Right. How prevalent is this wild bird feeding in so far as buying bird seed and people doing it? Well, in Australia, you would be led to think that it's a very rare thing and that only a, a, a few strange people like yourself might be involved in such a strange activity. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because everybody seems, everybody seems to know that you shouldn't be doing it and everybody seems to also know why we shouldn't be doing it. There's, you know, it's really a strongly held set of ideas. Um, if you went to the council or the local bird group or the, or the uh, national parks people or anyone, anyone, they will all be able to tell you, that you why you shouldn't be feeding birds. And so it was assumed for a long time that hardly anybody was. But the research that we started doing a long time ago now has shown that uh, the proportion is about between a third and a half of all the households in Australia feed birds regularly in their own backyard. So it's very, very common. And I suppose you've just hit on how Australia actually fares in comparison to other countries in relation to the activity itself. Like it's very frowned upon here. And our policies, I think mm. you mentioned, are the most most stringent in the world. And yet we have, is that right, the highest and one of the highest numbers of people who actually feed them well it's not it's not probably higher probably i would say i would say that england is probably has a higher proportion of the overall population that's actively involved but but what's really unusual is that we're the only western country at least in the world where that's where the general idea is that bird feeding is bad for the birds and we shouldn't be doing it everywhere else uh, any, anybody who's ever been to England or the United States or Canada or Germany or some places like that, it's very actively promoted. All the bird groups, all the env- environmental groups, all the conservation groups all actively promote the feeding of birds where our equivalent groups would say you're absolutely not it's something that we shouldn't be doing. So there's a strange mystery going on there. Why are we the only country in the world where this is really frowned upon? Uh, and, and then, you know, as you, as you already alluded to, even though that may be the case, same proportion of people are out there feeding birds as they are in the places where it's 
where it's really promoted. So it's a very strange situation. What what do you put that mystery or that strange situation down to where Australia, you know, we have that strict kind of, oh, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I know it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. I don't know why it's so prevalent. I need to get on to um, a sociologist to, and a historian probably to go through the reasons why that's the case because mm. the very things that people bring up, the reason that everybody can t- articulate why we shouldn't be doing it, they'll catch disease, I'll get dependent on the food, there'll be predators, there'll be, you know, all those kinds of things, the wrong birds get um, uh, attracted, all that kind of stuff. It's exactly the same anywhere in the world where feeding is occurring. So it's a bit strange to... I mean, I, I honestly don't know why it's become such the prevalent narrative in Australia. But, you know, the other interesting thing is that people have said, well, it doesn't really matter, I'm going to feed anyway. And uh, But that, you know, that's that's what's so interesting and kind of what I'm where I'm trying to go now is that those people who are feeding birds and really often care deeply about the birds, there's nowhere for them to get information about how to do it properly or what to do or how to avoid harm or what's the right food because if they ever were silly enough to ask, you know, the local council or the local con- conservation group about what they should be doing, they'll just be see- saying you shouldn't be doing it at all. So mm. there's nowhere to go and get information. As you mentioned there, and I'd like to go into the motivations for feeding the wild birds, but as you hit on there, it's an, almost an act of defiance. It doesn't matter what, you know, the conservation groups or what the policies say, people will continue to feed birds. Yes, and, and that's, be, that's because they have a very strong motivation and, and they, these are the things you will probably want to talk about. Is, yes. So why do so many people want to feed birds in such an active way? So, so I've done some, quite a lot of work, especially and I should pay tribute to one of my PhD students called Renee Chapman, who's just finished an incredible study on this stuff, where she really delved into the reasons behind it. And we looked at feeders in Australia and feeders in Great Britain and, and with very different social backgrounds. You know, in one place it's promoted and the other place it's frowned upon. And, and so really tried to tease apart what the differences are and what, what's going on. So um, it's very complex. There are a very wide range of reasons that people give. Um, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, which is a lot more understandable, where they have severe winters, um, it comes down to more or less a welfare reason, a welfare motivation. So if you're in winter in London or, you know, Rome or Paris or somewhere and you see really cold, starving birds... You can't help but want to assist them. You know, they, they, it's, a, it's a, a humane way of, of providing assistance and relieving suffering. That's what it's about. And you can see that. You know, that's, that takes no brains to realise that that's one of the strong motivations. Well, we don't really have that here. We, we don't have that freezing cold. I mean, we have periodic droughts as we're going through at the moment. We have um, bushfires occasionally and, and, uh, and maybe a really severe storm, but it's never prolonged and it's never seasonal like it is in the northern hemisphere but what we what we do have is um, a real concern for the way that human activity has destroyed habitat so in australia one of the things that came out the a very strong motivation for people that they told us was that they in a sense they were so upset about how much damage humans had done to the world the reason that they were feeding birds was to try and give something back to nature to try and um re-evaluate a little bit of or rebalance some of the damage that we've done back to nature and so the reason that you know that people were willing to spend their money on on food for birds was because they were in their one small way were trying to give something back which it's a pretty powerful sentiment that sort of thing it is a very powerful sentiment i think one of the words used from a respondent was it, it it's an atonement Yes, no, that's right. That was a word genuinely used by these people. So that's how strong it was. So if you came to those people and said, why, you know, you shouldn't be feeding birds, it's terrible for them, they just shake their heads and say, you don't understand, do you? You know, you just don't get it, how how big a a thing we've done to the world and how we've got it. You know, everybody is trying to do their just their little bit and so I'm I'm trying to do something by feeding my birds. And and so that's a really powerful thing. You're not going to be able to legislate against that kind of um, activity. It gets me thinking it is part of a, it's a defiance and it's, it's in our control, isn't it? It's something that yes, we, that we can, um, it's like a nod to a, a justice we think should be in the world and it, it's something that we, we can do ourselves is actually feed the wild birds yes, or, yes. and feed yeah, them, no. and we'll get into this later, but feed them an appropriate uh, diet, yes. which is, is of, of yes. your concern. But 
this may, it's almost like a mainstream, genuine kindness that we have. That's what I'm picking up, speaking to different people that feed all kinds of animals. Like um, we've spoken to a dingo and fox rescue group in New South Wales. Mm. And, you know, they'll have all sectors of the community bring in, you know, fox kittens so that's baby foxes or you know or you know baby pest species or the farmers bringing in the pups of the of the dogs that have been shot on the property because there's this genuine kind of uh it's almost unquestioned area a landscape in our heart for fear of you know i can become a bit floral and and descriptive of this but it, it, it's a genuinely in, in, in us, isn't it, the, in this day and age? That this is a way we can silently protest. Well, I think, I th- I think you're right onto, onto something there because we're increasingly urbanised. More and more of us are living in big cities. And, and I think there's a genuine yearning for something to do with nature. Um, um, I, I, I will counter that by saying that we're never actually far from nature anyway and that we are in in, in fact, unavoidably nature anyway. We're not, we are, we're not separate to nature. We are part of nature, so we might as well get used to that. <laughs> but there is the, you know, there's the simple reality that, you know, the, the bush and the wildlife that we would like to see is often very far away, and we, we find ourselves remote, increasingly remote from that. And, and, you know, it's only on TV shows where you actually see things like that. So when you're you know, living in an inner-city apartment 13 storeys up, what can you do? Well, if it's a simple matter of just putting out a bit of seed on a, on a dish and something truly wild for no reason that, that you can control, it's own, of its own volition, it just comes, comes in to visit you at your place for a brief moment, brings some wildlife in, wildness into your life and then leaves on its own accord. I mean, that's something truly wild. It's nothing tame about it. There's nothing, um, uh, nothing artificial about it. That's just what happens when and when a wild thing comes to visit us, and for some people that's a really profound and wonderful experience. And it's you know, and it's a very simple thing. So I think that's yet another dimension to this wildlife feeding thing is that you know we can get some true nature right where we live, and that's a wonderful experience. You speak of the extinction of experience in your book. Can you just briefly mm. comment on that? Yes, that's one of these. Uh, it's not my my phrase it came out of some um, people who were studying the way that p- people especially children interact with nature and they and it's kind of comes around from the real- reality that more and more often now the experience of children in cities where most of us are now living is is more and more devoid from a natural experience we don't often you know go hunting for tadpoles in the in the creek anymore or um, looking for birds' nests in the trees or building a fort out the back in the bush where, where mum said, you know, you can only spend three hours out and you have to be back by dark. We've got a much more regimented childhood these days with a lot less direct connection with nature and less interaction with nature. So the extinction of experience is a thing that says um, there is an extinction of the direct interaction with nature often. Um, and that can have a terrible detrimental effect. And one of the things that the people who invented this phrase are worried about is that if people are no longer interacting directly with nature and maybe only seeing it on screens, in, you know, in a, in, a di- in a digital form, they, they won't, won't seem to worry about whether, whether there's natural places left, whether the national parks are still out there for us to visit or the, the wildlife is still down by the creek where it used to be when you were a kid. They won't care anymore because you can just see it on TV now. And so you know, that, that extinction of experience could actually have long-term implications for, for the planet. You mentioned in the book we have hundreds of books, of thousands of books on bird feeding, what and where to mm. feed them or, or see them. But in your words, the amount of um, genuine scientific research investigating what this means for uh, people, ecosystems, landscapes and, importantly, the birds themselves is shockingly inadequate. Why does this matter? It it matters because we... And this is to do with Australia very much so. So in in the United States and in England, just to to give two examples which are very well organised, there's been lots and lots of studies about how... What, what birds will eat and all those sorts of things and what they should be eating and what you can buy in the shops and how good those things are. But there's nothing like that in Australia because it's been a forbidden subject. 
So there's been nowhere for the for the feeders to go and find information. But more more than that is that there's been very little information on even in places that I've mentioned, like England and America, where the animals where the birds are flying in to feed on people's yards. There's been remarkably little actual study on urban stuff. So the birds that come to suburban backyards, it's really hard to do that sort of information, to grab that information, to do that research, because there's people always there. So it's really hard to be doing that. So there's been... Most of the information comes from um, a kind of an extrapolation from something that was done from some other study, not exactly of that nature. We really need to understand what's going on in the strange but absolutely essential and very large suburban ecosystem that we now live in and we and we are controlling we put the plants in we put the food in we do the watering we do the mowing we do the the uh putting the fertilizer in spraying the pesticides we have complete complete control over our backyard and everybody's backyard adds up to a very large area and that's a that's a largely unexplored habitat and we need to know much much more about it uh, can you briefly just mention then how much bird seed do we actually buy? It's it's extraordinary, that, yeah. As in, uh, in addition to that, we can't not be having an effect on the ecologies. That's right. There's not not a huge amount known about Australia, but although all those people would say, you know, I, I think it's around about three million. I estimate three million people feed birds every single day in Australia, which is you know a substantial amount. We don't have enough. We they, those people usually provide about a, a kilogram of. Of, uh, of seed every every day, um, no, every week. But what the th- truly extraordinary figure that I got from somebody was that um, in America, at least, where the best information is coming from available at the moment, is that if you put all the food together in one place, it was the equivalent of 21,000 railway carriages worth of seed is put out every single year. 21,000 railway carriages worth of seed. I mean, that's it's truly beyond... Com- comprehension how much seed that is and what's really amazing is it all gets eaten it's all get eaten but equally as astonishing is that none of it's actually needed none of those birds needed any of that seed it's just additional to what they would normally feed on uh, and yet they all eat it so that that amount of extra food has got to have all sorts of ecological effects and so you know in the simple matter of doing this feeding um, we are changing ecosystems completely by the by the way we um provide this extra food uh, you mentioned there that no matter what we we feed the birds and how often is it all it's always a supplementary um snack if you will is that correct to say absolutely so it's really worth knowing that so um although we put out lots of food and we'd love to have lots of birds visiting us in our backyard for, for the majority of those birds that come and, and visit us briefly and have a have a snack and then move on. It isn't much more than a snack. It's only around about seven to ten percent of their daily diet ever comes from the feeders. That's really important to know because that means the vast majority of ninety percent probably of their daily food will get from the natural so their natural sources anyway. Whatever the insects and grubs and seeds and fruit and whatever else they, that particular species eats. So even though they come and visit us a lot and eat quite a lot of food, it's a lot of birds coming. And most of them don't need too much. It's just a snack. So I think it's really important to know that because there are lots of people and perhaps people listening to your show right now will be reasonably convinced that the food that they're providing is providing all the nutrition that those birds that are visiting need. Thankfully, that's not the case because it probably wouldn't be appropriate to live only on that stuff that we're putting out. Thankfully, they all know what to what to, what to to feed on naturally and they never get used to it. One of the first things I... I mentioned earlier about the fears of bird feeding is that the birds will become dependent on that food. It just simply doesn't happen. They don't, they don't get dependent on it. They only use it for a little bit and then they sensibly go off and find the natural stuff to feed on. Is it also true that they... I understand birds are separate feeders, like there are birds that have seeds and birds that you know eat insects and what have you, yep. so they yep. do have a varied yep. diet. But is it also true that also the seed that you put out, they know not... They just don't take that back to the nest to feed their baby birds ever? Well, that, that's almost almost what you've got there. So that was a particular study that I was mentioning. Um, we were really... It was about magpies, which are the commonest bird fed in Australia. And most people, and this is something we should try and mention later on, 
Mm-hmm. Most people feed a simple, easily available type of food, and that would be probably mince, just mince ground up beef for them because it's easy and cheap to get. And so we were worrying about, wor- wondering about whether the birds, the, ma- the magpies, were taking this stuff to their chicks in the nest. And what we found was almost none of them did. It was a very t- tiny fraction of the food that they got off the, off, the, off the feeder was taken to the chicks. Nearly all the food that those adult birds um, fed to their chicks was, was grubs and worms dug up the old-fashioned hard, hard way from the, from the ground below. So even though we, were, we, we thought, surely these birds are really trying hard. They're good, trying to keep up with these very hungry chicks in the nest. Surely they'll be just going to do it the easy way and take all that mince just sitting down on Mrs Smith's meat tray over there. No, they didn't. They they still we we we, we suggested that they had a, a no junk food policy these ad, <laughs> adult magpies because they were feeding them mostly the right stuff, which was yeah. really relieving. Yeah, yeah. yeah we will get to more um, onto uh, the other concerns you have there with what we're feeding the magpies, but first let's talk about with feeding birds. Are we spreading disease? And how does this affect populations as a whole? So what have you found about out about that in your research or insights? Yes, no, I, can, I can talk to you about that. That's a very important point. Because although there's probably two big concerns that people have as soon as they start, you start thinking about feeding. One of them is, is the dependency thing, and we found that that's really not the case. And the other one is, does it spread disease? Does having a feeder actually allow disease to spread more readily? And that one turns out to be very true. And it's not much of a surprise. I mean, what we're doing when we feed birds is something really unusual. We are artificially concentrating lots of birds in a single location to come down, often lots of different species, to come down to one place where they would all mingle together. Not at the same time, but over over a whole day, there might be lots of birds coming to the same spot or to get the feed because we put it in one place, in one, one location, and they're used to coming to that location, and it's probably there for day after day after day. So it's no, it's no mystery at all. If, it, if there was an infectious bird, a bird that was sick, and it came to visit that location, that's the ideal way to spread the disease because those birds are then going to come to that location, pick up the disease, go to the next feeder, and spread the disease endlessly. And that's just what happens. It's not... Not so much in Australia yet, but we haven't had a major outbreak. But there's been all sorts of outbreaks, especially in places like the United States and Great Britain, where they have followed very, very closely the spread of disease directly because they came from from feeders. So that is something that we have to take really seriously. So when I um, I am talking to people and people are hearing about this in Australia where we haven't been really talking about it much, the, thing, the second thing I say after what do you feed them is make sure that the feeder, whatever sort of thing you use, a platform or a, a hanging feeder or whatever it is, you have to keep it very, very clean. If birds get sick or die, you never actually see them nearby. They don't stay up the feeder and die. So lots of people are assuming that because they don't see any sick birds they, that nothing's happening, but it, that's not the case at all. If, you, if a bird gets sick from the feeder, they don't stay around for us to notice. They just fly away and die somewhere else in the bush, probably, and we would never even see that. So, how do we know? So that's, yeah. How do we sorry? know that the feeder is um, kept clean and hygienic? Like, how do we know that the seed that oh, we, we put, put out? Yeah. Oh, it's not the seed. It's just the. It's how dirty the, the tray gets. So it's like someone coming to visit you and having dinner with your with you one night. If you make sure that the plate's very, very clean. Uh, you certainly wouldn't spe- you wouldn't provide your food on a on a dirty plate. We have to make sure that the feeder, whatever sort of structure it is, is is absolutely clean. So usually, what happens is, and I do this every morning myself, you sweep away all the debris, any of the uh, the droppings or offshoots or or old bits of seed, and click, spread it and sweep it all away off the off the side. Clean it with some um, something simple like um, something simple like uh, vinegar. Is, is good, just vinegar, wipe it down with vinegar, then dry it, make sure it's clean, and then put the food on the top of that. So it doesn't take long, but it's really necessary if we're going to make sure that we never allow, allow disease to be spread. Did you also find a something that was a positive aspect of in regards to healing a population, in regards to if we're using our feeders, we can actually heal them from that disease also? 
Um, there's been some of those cases, absolutely. So when, when this was done in England, where um, it was discovered that a certain disease was spreading, this particular disease was one that they could actually treat. So, and it was very localised. It was just in one, one particular location. So what the uh, authorities were able to do there was provide for all the people. They went to a local location and provided a certain type of seed. It was the same kind of seed that the birds were feeding on, but it had been treated with some antibiotics. And they spread that through the population. So, And they were able to de- defeat a disease by going to the feeders where the birds were, were feeding. So um, that was a, that's a, a, a rare and... But, extremely hopeful situation where they were able to you know, combat the disease on the spot. In England, since the discovery of some of these diseases in England especially, everybody seems to now be aware of how to treat the, uh, your feeders. So when you go to the shops and buy the seed and the feeders and all those sorts of things, there's now special little spray bottles with um, what you can use to clean your feeder and all that sort of thing. It's taken, they've taken it very seriously. So prevention is obviously always better than cure. Yeah, Always. Uh, you are on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, and I am talking with Daryl Jones, who wrote a fantastic book. Um, I must say I really enjoyed it, as well as being really informative and, and inspiring as to, you know, it really kind of gets you to think about things a bit more critically. This book is called The Birds at My Table and Why We Feed Birds and Why It Matters. It was published earlier this year. Let's get back to magpies, Daryl. Um, you've got a major concern here because I know that many people in Australia have a really beautiful relationship with the magpies in the backyard, Yet, and they really do think that they are dependent and reliant, reliant on what they feed them, and they often feed them meat, and you have great concerns here. Can you explain your concerns for us? Sure, that's right. So magpies would normally, they're an insectivorous bird. We sometimes call them just carnivorous, but that's not accurate enough. They eat primarily grubs and worms that they dig out of the ground. That's almost everything that they eat. They'll eat other things on occasions, but that's you know, 99% of what they eat most of the time. Now, it's pretty hard to go to the shops if you wanted to have a magpie come to visit you and buy the worms and grubs out of the um, supermarket trolley. But, but what you can use is because they'll eat any type of meat you like and and so lots of people have just feed them chopped up anything, um, sausages, beef, ham, whatever it might be. But, of course, the simplest and cheapest and most readily available is, is mince. Now, the problem with that is that mince is not like worms. It's just it's, it, it doesn't have enough a balance of calcium and phosphorus, and that's the biggest problem. So this has been discovered a long time ago when people were feeding um, carnivorous animals in zoos. They were just feeding them lumps of meat, you know, like steaks all the time, and finding out that they were getting really weak bones um, as a result of just eating the meat. And it was discovered that that's because there was not enough calcium in the meat. Just straight meat doesn't have enough calcium. A a lion, for example, just doesn't eat straight meat. It meat. It meat. It eats all of the animal. It eats the fur and the, and the bones and the meat as well as the, and the fat and all sorts of parts. And, and when you do that, you have a, a nice balance. And so the calcium levels were appropriate. If you feed animals just mince or just chopped up liver or whatever it might be, that doesn't have anywhere near enough calcium, but the body needs calcium all the time. And so the body will, in order to grow, will start extracting calcium from its own supplies of calcium and that's in the bones and they can become weak or this this uh change in shape and and all sorts of things can go on so part of my part of my endeavor now with trying to talk to everybody that will listen to me about bird feeding is really enjoy the magpies that's the favorite bird that people like to feed in australia but let's just feed them something different to mince mince is absolutely what we should not be feeding them anymore substitute mince and the best thing at the moment until we come up with an artificial worm mix or something um, which we don't have yet um, will be something like dog food or cat food Um, they are fine they are they're well balanced they've been developed for the feeding of animals and so that should be okay so that's that's my first and most strong thing to say as well as cleaning your feeder make sure that if you're feeding mince substitute it for some cat food or dog food it's, I mean, we're an animal advocacy show, so we, we don't encourage the feeding of meat. But I'm just thinking, what it, with the magpies, it, it's still a supplementary feeding, is that right? Even whatever we put oh, out. Oh, yes. And yeah. Absolutely. It's always just an, a little addition to whatever, it's, whatever the birds normally feed on. So mm. most of the time, those magpies are just eating 
the worms and grubs as they always have done. Magpies are really suited, you explain, to our urban landscapes because we've got lots of, you know, mowed lawns and open areas and trees that act like canopies for them, which which brings me mm. to um, talking about our, our backyards. And, you know, a lot of us will go to the local nursery and we want to encourage birds into our backyard or want to be, you know, nice and kind to the wildlife. And we we get the the trees that say the plants that say good bird attracting species. Can you um, let us know about what we need to consider here? Because we may be favouring different populations and disadvantaging others. Can you tell us about that? Yes, no, that's right. So that's that's um, that's something that probably lots of us have been guilty of by thinking we're doing the right thing. Um, I'm old enough to remember that there was a time when once upon a time all the plants in people's yards were just calistamins and roses. You know, we're just like England. But Australia is very different to that. Thankfully, in the, I guess, in the 70s and 80s, people discovered that Australia has lots of its own wonderful plants that we can put out. So there was a huge boom in, in colourful flowering plants like calistamins and grevilleas and banksias and all those kinds of things. And that's what we put in our yards and they were often and are promoted as bird-friendly plants. And that's really important because we shouldn't be just providing food in the way of, you know, in a, at a feeder. We should be providing a full array of habitat for birds to live in, not just food, but nearly all of those flowering grevilleas, etc., were, uh, and especially some of the cultivars which have large, much larger than normal, than natural um, blooms, and some of those blooms last all year. They bloom unnaturally all the time, which is crazy, but it, but it looks wonderful, and that's what we like. But, of course, some birds think this is absolutely brilliant because that's what they like to eat, so... There are certain species like the very, very common noisy miner, a type of honey eater, which comes screaming into these places and, and says, this is exactly what we like. We like to eat, eat the nectar and pollen from these flowers. And the problem with noisy miners are native, nonetheless, but they if you've got noisy miners, a colony of noisy miners is your place, they will drive out everything else that's smaller than them so you won't have anything else. So it won't increase the biodiversity of your place at all. Mm. And the other thing that's happened, which is just spectacular is that in the last 10 years the most colorful and outrageous parrot of them all the rainbow lorikeet has become the commonest urban bird in the whole of australia even Every compared to like now has it. wow even compared to like pigeons and and um miners yes. wow yes the, the the commonest bird in sydney melbourne perth adelaide and Brisbane, and even and, and and Perth, I mentioned Perth as well is especially strange because um, rainbow lorikeets were introduced to Perth from the eastern states. They're in all of those countries now, in all those cities now, the commonest bird in the whole of the city is a rainbow lorikeet. Extraordinary. Now that's wonderful for for birds like that, but that's there's too many of them, and that's because again we've provided them with this incredibly rich sugary diet in abundance. Everybody's Everybody second, every second yep, house yard has got a grevillea in it and they're streaming in, breeding up and becoming probably out of balance. There's probably more rainbow lorikeets than there are in, in, in places like Brisbane where I know a little bit about birds than most places. The large number of rainbow lorikeets is now out-competing the other birds which like the hollows to, in which to nest. So they're out-competing the gliders and, and any of the other smaller parrots which also want to nest in those hollows directly because of the choices that we have made in putting in um, the, the types of plants in our gardens. So we need to be just a little bit more careful, really. We still need to have native plants. We still need to have hedge-type plants, thick canopy-type plants, and low-canopy-type, low, canopy type, low um, understory-type plants so that little birds can survive and, and grow in the, in the presence of noisy miners. And so we need much more thought about habitat overall rather than just providing food in the way of flowers. Is there a, a website or is there somewhere where people can find out the information in their like local area of what they can be planting that would be according to your guidelines there? Probably not in relation to directly in, about bird food, but what, one of the things that everybody needs to be doing is providing, putting, putting in plants which are suitable for your location. So if they come from the same area... Um, they'll need a lot less water and a lot less care because they're used to those conditions. Now, I don't know about lots of places, but I know that a place, most of the city councils now have website places where you can go and say, what are the plants suitable to my area? And that 
can be very handy. Some of the bigger nursery places also have those types of things as well. But at the moment, we're still slowly getting to grips with the fact that we probably shouldn't have so many flowering grevilleas. We need to have a wider range of plants that we put in our yards. Daryl, you took a survey which was a love and care for nature scale invented by the social Mm. scientist ecologist you mentioned earlier on in the um, chat, Renee Chapman, in which you scored highly, but noted, (laughs) (laughs) which wouldn't surprise me. But in your book, you then go on to say, don't tell my wildlife colleagues. What did you mean by that? Give us a, yeah, what did you mean by that? that? That's probably alluding to the fact that um, um, when I was, trained as a red-blooded ecologist you know we didn't take any notice of these people or especially what the people thought or especially about their um perspectives on things we were just interested only in the animals and those thankfully those days have changed completely now so you know when i train my own students we we hear about the importance of including people in in our conversations at all stages um we don't just ignore the fact that People are around, and and that's unavoidable now because I'm an urban ecologist. I work in the cities where, unsurprisingly, there are people everywhere. So, no, that that was just alluding to the fact that, you know, once upon a time we were pretended that people didn't exist. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we're very separate from, yeah, and and, (laughs) and our our activities weren't kind of, we weren't accountable almost for our actions in our relationship with that species, right. I guess, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, um, exactly. And, and, and I mean, I'm, I, I push that even further now. I've gone way down that path to the extent where I'm, I'm continuously saying to my colleagues, "We are part of nature, you fool. You can't get away from it. We, this is, this is, it's unavoidable. We have to start reassessing who we are. We are just part of nature." What is most interesting to me is down the path that you've gone down is what you talk about in the final chapter of what this says about us at the present time, this global phenomenon. You have a section titled Bird Feeding Can Save the World. Mm. Tell us how. (laughs) you want me to talk about that? Oh, I so do because I think it really is missing in a lot of the narrative and and there's something so beautiful about the personal and the global in, in your articulation which I... I um, would love you to explain a bit more. So tell us how bird feeding can save the world. What's it got well, to I'm do with wonder and hope? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So I think what I'm what I'm trying to get at there is that we really must rediscover how important nature is in our lives. We need to, and it goes back to the extinction of experience. We need to rekindle that. We go un, unextinct, whatever that means. Um, that's not the right word, um, but but go back into nature and discover just how important it is to us. And we don't have to go very far; we can, our own backyard will do. But one of the things that has has absolutely revolutionised this sort of thinking is the the understanding now that just how beneficial being in nature of any sort, even just walking through a park or going for a bushwalk or seeing a bird fly past or anything like that, can have on people's um, physical well-being, on their and emotional and, and psychological well-being. These things have been shown to be extremely important. People heal better. They have better relationships if they have some sort of uh, some sort of exposure and interaction with nature, and, and in whatever sense. So, in a, even if you work in the in a city in a big apartment block in a big skyscraper in downtown somewhere, if you can go and have lunch in the nearby park among the trees and the birds. That can have a huge effect. So if that's as if it's as simple as that, and that's been measured in endless studies now, and and people are starting to take this very seriously. If that's the case, then what about something as dramatic as actually having a truly wild animal come to visit you in your own backyard? That can have a truly profound effect. So you know we're, we're looking for opportunities to reconnect people, especially children, with nature. Sticking out a bit of seed and having a wild bird arrive is such a simple way to do that that it could be an absolute revolution. And I will tell you that just at the moment there's been some lot of interest from the work that I've been doing in introducing a simple bird feeder into old people homes. And those the, the couple of places where that's occurred has shown a dramatic increase in the in the willingness of the people to be involved. They now sort of compete to, for the opportunity to come and put out the food. Um, <laughs> 
to um, and they exchange about you know who's going to which species are going to turn up today, and it's had a dramatic increase in in um, in uh, all sorts of benefits in those sorts of places. So I can only hope that it you know expands everywhere. I mean, and it's such a simple, cheap thing to do. It, it's really easy to organise, and yet could have fantastic results. So, yes, I do. In a, in a particular sense, I think that bird feeding could save the world because it'll make it mean we're much more attuned to the importance of nature around us. It's beautiful. It's it's almost you make it sound like it's a, it's very it's um it's very serious emotional artillery that we need in these very challenging times to. Uh, create the almost like a kinship scenario that a lot of us, you know, who have who yes, experience sure. bird feeding already, or, or um, acting as a community in response to what animals need or what nature needs for us, for yep. nature to yep. continue, for our forests to continue. It's mm-hmm. um, it really is a beautiful. I mean, I do it. It's a very selfish thing because it it feels so good to be able to cooperate and, you know, cooperate with with nature in that way. Um, Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's So so I hope for you personally then, Emma. Yes. You know, having read the book, that you realise that you you may have been, had some apprehension. You may, am I doing the right thing? Is it the right food? All those kinds of things. Absolutely. Well, I hope that you're re- you're reassured that you probably aren't doing irreparable damage to the birds and that it's probably fine. Um, as long as the food that you provide is appropriate and the, the plate is clean, enjoy it while you can because it's a wonderful thing. We should actually, um, I should have probably mentioned this earlier, but when it comes to like the scra- uh, scraps, we weren't talking about these kind of feeders, but when you are you throw the extra chips or the bread out, is that a bad or a good thing in general, Daryl? Well, uh, or in, it's probably not a wonderfully good thing in the in the end, but because... Unless it's a lot, and unless it's a, it's a lot, it's um, probably not doing too much damage. But the the bread of the bread of the park is is an issue. Um, I don't know how we're ever going to overcome that because everybody loves to do it. You just see it every park in the universe seems to have people feeding birds and the feeding the ducks. That that isn't good for them. Um, it, it does cause damage, but I don't know what the alternative is. Some places I've just come back from um, Great Britain. Uh, and I've seen. I went to a whole lot of parks looking for this particular thing. Particular thing, and there are lots of signs saying don't feed them bread. Why don't you feed them? And they had a long list of things, including grapes and lettuce and cooked rice. But the problem is that requires so much more effort, and people just don't like to go to the effort. And that's because even though right next to the sign saying don't feed us bread, bread, people were still feeding bread because it's so easy. So I think we've got a long way to go on that one. At the moment, the drought is a prevalent issue. Mm. Uh, can you, any, you know, just general hints on what people can do for the birds, whether you're in nearby townships yes, no, well, that, bur- that border onto the drought area? Absolutely. So there's no, no excuse for, not, for any house in Australia not to have a bird bath. There's nothing controversial about bird baths. But at this time, it's really hard. It's tough out there. There's no food. There was no no food and there's no water often in these places, so everyone you can just make up a bird bath that can be just about anything you like, just anything that will hold water that you can clean easily, fairly easily. Um, but it, you you can also put out some some food as well for the for the birds, although the water is much more important. So yes, there's something we can do there, um, and I guess one of the things the simple things is what food to use. Basically, there's two sorts. There's the there's the, the the types of grain sort of things, and there's the meaty sort of things. If it's if it's a, a meaty sort of things like for the magpies, then I'm advocating just pet food of some sort. But if it's seed, the best thing to do in the simplest way is to only buy the seed mixes that are made by a by a pet food company, not just by you know the black and white brand or the Acme brand or the No Name brand. They tend to be just silly, you know, rubbish seed that, that the birds don't even eat anyway. So if you're going to buy bird seed, make sure it's by a pet food company. Okay. One more thing before you go, Daryl. I know that we've been, yep. we've, you've been very generous with your time. Um, 
another a big news item, but it's pretty much every year that um, you know a lot of wildlife vets at this time, at when it becomes winter, there's an influx of unfortunately dead, dying barn owls, and they're, they're the ones that get the publicity. But a lot of birds die because people um, put a lot of rat poison out and when they put a lot of rat poison out because the rodents are coming into the house to get warm or whatever then those rats or mice go outside and they uh their carcasses are eaten by birds and unfortunately they secondary poisoning kills the birds so yeah and there's a lot of options we can we can do other than putting rat poison out now i know that rodents steal eggs from bird nests but the thing is if you're killing the rats and the rodents in that way you know you're killing the birds as well now that's a that's a really important point and thankfully they've come up with some new rodenticides some some different sorts of sort of poisons which aren't toxic to birds i don't know whether they've spread very widely through australia yet but i've just as i, as I said i've just been in the uk and now those things are they're spreading everyone seems to know about them now which ones not to use so i'm not mm. sure which uh, what's the of the brand but there are going there's going to be some rat poisons which you can use but yeah, you know it's it's, it's we have tricky. to be mm. if we whatever we do we have an impact further down the the food chain and and that you know the you know you just think well they're own, only rats it doesn't really matter but when you realize that you're you're that you know killing a rat might actually end up killing a an owl that looks has a totally different perspective on it, doesn't it? There's a there's a whole web of consequences which yes, aren't usually absolutely. which aren't brought to light. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a simple you know it goes back to you simply buy a plant from the nursery and stick it in your yard. Well, that can have you know if it's the if it's the wrong sort of plant that can have long term effects all the way down through the whole ecosystem. So it's again it's this thinking ecologically and and that realizing that we are a part of nature. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today, Daryl. I've really enjoyed it, Emma. That's I've, fantastic. I really enjoyed the chat. So, uh, everyone, you can get a copy of Birds at My Table, Why We Feed Wild Birds and, and Why It Matters. Thanks, Daryl. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Thanks very much. See you later. Okay, we'll go for a break now. This is uh, Angels by Eurythmics. to an empty room Suddenly my heart goes boom It's an orchestra of angels They're playing with my heart You are on 3CR 855 AM and it's the Freedom of Species show Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves That was a tune uh, called Angels by Eurythmics, the fabulous voice of Annie Lennox. And, I don't know, I think that the most sensitive upon us would agree listening to birds, whether it be in a forest or in your backyard, it pretty much feels like an orchestra of angels playing with your heart. Yep, I'm a soppy soul. We finished up a chat with Daryl Jones, who wrote a great book, I read in the last couple of weeks called Birds at My Table, Why We Feed Wild Birds and Why It Matters. I think it's just really interesting from um, a social scientist point of view as well as an ecology point of view. We learnt some interesting things that no matter what we feed the birds, it's always supplementary. It's a snack. It's in addition to what they would naturally get in the environment. Um, That excludes, of course, I guess critical uh, critical times, um, for example, the drought at the moment or, you know, um, disaster zones, I guess, where they clearly can't get the food that they would naturally get. So, yeah, really interesting. And also interesting, I thought that Australia is quite um, stringent and, you know, we turn our nose down and frown upon in policy about feeding birds, but we have, many of us do, uh, and that, that is quite unique in Australian culture compared to other countries. Uh, so that's interesting. And I guess we're also talking about the Western world and the capacity for um, Western countries to go and buy birdseed and buy feeders, etc., to put in our backyards. So we're pretty much talking about birds today, birds and bees. We need them. 
and a lot of people are going to great efforts to bring native bees and to encourage those populations in our urban environments. So important, as a friend of mine said, no bee, there's no we. Uh, So I think, you know, if we could all just consider, even if you're in an apartment, you can always maybe get a few plants or uh, put get you know, a good feeder and buy the right type of bird seed, you know, attract, attract the birds or help the birds survive in our environments as well. And also really think about the plants that you're going to plant in your backyard. It is spring coming up. So uh, think about all, all kinds of bird species in your backyard when you when you buy plants, don't just buy grevilleas and the ones that say uh, bird attracting. Look into it a little bit more. All right, just a brief bit of news. We did speak to Daryl about so many barn owls have been handed into wildlife hospitals because of the rat poisons that have been put out. And uh, even though I know Daryl alluded to that there are apparently more other rodenticides um, that don't kill the birds. Still, there's a lot we can do. I know in our house um, that we have, I put a lot of peppermint oil around. Just make sure you're, you know, your house is nice and tight. There's no gaps where they can get in. Um, if you do general cleanliness, keep you know your food and compost things away from the house. There's, there's a lot of, you know, day to day domestic maintenance that you can do. You don't have to, you know, grab that poison as your first port of call. There's many other things you can do and they will just not be invited into your house. One other news item that I wanted to share with you this morning, I found out, this happens a lot, but anyway, 30 Brumbies uh, at Echuca Sales Yards, they were rounded up in the Northern Territory and now they're there. So these wild animals were rounded up and, that's a very long way to be driven in a truck, these wild, scared animals. And the thing is that a lot of those horses will end up at the knackery. This is called uh, a rehoming process by national parks and government up there. So it's not. Most of them will end up in the knackery and in pet food. So I think it's kind of a nice segue today because we're talking about feeding wild animals, but we also need to really take a critical look at the web um, that we are a part of when we buy food and feed our even domesticated loved animals. What are we being a part of, you know? What are we... What's really happening? There's also the kangaroo culls. A lot of the kangaroos will go to pet food. So what kind of cruelty are we inflicting on other animals and feeding our own beloved animal now there are options here there's a fabulous website called veggie pets which was founded by a a veterinarian dr andrew knight for options on how to feed your companion animal a healthy healthy vegan diet lots of great information and research there there's been a lot of scares on um, and dogs and uh, pets dying or getting very sick because they've been fed animal-based meat pet products uh, for many reasons. It's, it's you, you got to look into these things, people. Just like we're looking into our own diets and what's good for us, we need to look at what's good for them. Anyway, I've got to go. If you'd like to contact us, please do at info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter and the website. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.